So once again, Bruce, you've pushed our news and notes into being a large portion of the show, but I, I wanted to kind of continue with this evening's show topic, maybe for the remaining 15 or 20 minutes before we close out this uh, extraordinary uh, Biota Live. And the topic that I wanted to put out this evening comes from uh, P.W. Singer's Wired for War. I'm not sure, Jeffrey. you have, uh, you know, you're amazingly well-connected in terms of publications. Do you know Wired for War at all? Uh, no, but I, I'm familiar with Peter Singer. Is, is that the singer that we know about, the Australian philosopher? Uh, P.W. Singer, no, it's a different fellow. I'm sorry, okay. So the section of the book that deals with artificial life is specifically associated with Rodney Brooks and iRobot, but also the continuation of the robots that are being used currently in Iraq and Afghanistan specifically uh, by the U.S. I think I've heard about this, yeah. Yeah, so what interested me is the idea that artificial life in its most productive incarnation or certainly its most publicly known incarnation is currently being used either to, to disable IEDs or actively to, to act as kind of robotic soldiers in these two conflicts. So to move the, uh, move the conversation spectrum slightly towards the kind of darker edge, I find it fascinating as a kind of you know, contemporary advocate and um, artificial life hobbyist that these kind of ventures are the ones that are actually yielding a large portion of technical development, but also a certain degree of ethically bad um, PR in terms of fields like artificial life. And I think what I found particularly curious reading through Wired for War was the way Rodney Brooks is kind of portrayed as almost a kind of Peter Pan-like character in some regard, but also someone who is fundamentally ethically naive. And I'm not sure whether that is an accurate representation or whether that was the kind of characterization for the book. But, Jeffrey, I mean, you, you must think about the, these kind of ethical issues associated with particular directions of artificial life. I mean, what's your thinking with regards to this? Well, I suppose it's like uh, any, any technology created by humans. Uh, if it's powerful enough, it's going to have a dark side and a bright side. I think that's just... I think every technology has that potential. The advocates in the U.S. military and certainly, you know, the Pentagon describe it as actually being a, a life-saving idea. And certainly I've had, through, you know, through my career, I've met people in defense that talk about using all these technologies to save lives. So I think it's probably a euphemism for saving our lives versus the other, the other people's lives. There's a philosophy within these um, kind of companies associated with the idea that they're reducing the amount of time that is consumed by wars in some fundamental sense. And certainly in Wide Forward, there was a discussion of this idea of a kind of omnipresent battlefield where basically what you're gathering is so much intelligence. And this is the idea of soft artificial life. It's not just hard artificial life. It's not just robotics. Yeah, yeah. It's also soft artificial life in terms of information gathering, data gathering, and the way in which this is being processed. Yes. In fact, I can imagine that, that the viruses of today could become the, um, the weapons of the future. will actually be used to move around on the Internet, which is increasingly more, more and more a part of human life, to actually engage in, in, in battle autonomously. And as an artificial life developer, Jeffrey, I mean, what, what do you think your, your own interaction with regards to this is on a kind of ethical level? Well, I'm, I'm not going into that business, that's for sure. So I guess that's all, that's all I would say. Um, it's, it's, it's actually a part of, it's part of the human, uh, it's, it's part of the human equation to fight. And I, I don't, I, I think it'll always happen and there's always different ways. 
And I suppose this is just the, the next uh, the next era of, of how that's done. When you were at MIT, did you did you know Rodney Brooks? I, I've met him a few times, and um, I visited his lab, but he probably doesn't remember me. In terms of the kind of natural continuum, I mean, do you see places like MIT and potentially, you know, Stanford and these kind of universities being used for this kind of development and manipulation of artificial life into the future? Oh, yes. It's been going on for a very long time. Uh, part of my funding um, at the at the MIT Media Lab was was defense. I tried to uh, to to get out of that. I wanted to try to have most most of my research funding coming from other sources, but it's all it's also mixed it's also mixed in in the um, you know in in terms of where the funding goes. I was working on an air traffic control simulation, uh, visualizing some of the, the 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 aspects of air traffic control, and that was partially de- uh, funded by the Department of Transportation, but also DOD. Um, so that's been going on for a long time, and it probably always will. Yeah, I mean, certainly the mid-90s, John Klein, uh, a portion of Brule was funded, actually, I think, by a DARPA grant. So, I mean, this is, yeah, there's an ongoing narrative associated with artificial life development in some regard being partially funded by defense. The kind of headline, you know, artificial life soldier, and particularly with regards to the kind of, well, it's, it's not a contemporary narrative at all. My grandfather was, was bombed by the U.S. in the Second World War when he was fighting for the British. I mean, the whole notion of friendly fire is almost an ancient consequence of war. But even now, is these, you know, intelligent agents, be they hard artificial life, be they soft artificial life, do you think there's almost an element where we're... Uh, Losing the degree of responsibility associated with these kind of atrocities based on the fact that they're being undertaken by unmanned drones and, you know, independent agents. Do you think that's part of the narrative? Well, you know, this is making me think it might be a matter of semantics um, in the sense that you're using the word artificial life to to describe what we do. There's, of course, many different aspects of artificial life. Uh, in a sense, if you look at the whole continuum, the whole historical arc, it's autonomy. You know, the increasing the the increasing of autonomy in in militarism as well as every other human thread. And perhaps if you see it as part of that arc, an artificial life is just is just you know when when autonomy starts to look biological and act bi- biological, we call it artificial life. So you know sometimes. Sometimes people have to choose a different name for what they do because that name gets polluted by other endeavors. Like Craig Venter is using the word artificial life a lot, and that whole that whole world is a very different world, right? And mm-hmm. it has its, 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 all of its controversy associated with it. And that's kind of interfering with, with what we talk about when we talk about artificial life. So, you know, it could be that uh, our, our term has been, has been taken – by by a much bigger meme, and perhaps we need to use other terms. I'm just thinking that, you know, sometimes if you look at this uh, in terms of semantics, you can sort of see it differently. Certainly. And Bruce, whilst we joke about the Evo grid being used to create robots that take over the world, and there's a, there's a I'm not sure whether it's a Bruce Damer authorized video, but there's certainly an Evo grid video where the uh, where the robots take over London. What's your thought associated with the kind of ethics of artificial life associated with the potential military use of the EvoGrid? The EvoGrid Deep, as we've described it, is, is probably of no use 
for military use at all. Uh, you know, the military, uh, it, it, you have to sort of divide up. You know, I have many friends in the military and many friends who work in research and in DARPA. And DARPA, while well, supported by the Department of Defense, has got a lot of independent research. It isn't classified. So not all work for the DOD is, is going straight to battlefield applications. Um, and people who do SBIRs and other projects for the Air Force and whatnot are Many of them are doing really fundamental research that can be used by anybody, and it's also not classified. It might have ITAR restrictions. I won't explain that for the audience. But I think that the the evil grid itself is so fundamental. It's such so pure. Uh, it's, it's almost like particle physics, where um, we were out at the National Ignition Facility, for example, at uh, Lawrence Livermore Lab, and that's the inertial fusion uh, facility is just about to be turned on. And we met uh, John Lindell, who's, who got the thing funded, and he basically said, and I quote, he said, well, we told, our cover story was that the National Ignition Facility is, is going to uh, allow us to test the quality of weapons-grade uh, fissionable materials and, and, and safeguard our supply, because it will provide this capability. But truthfully, we're doing fundamental research that will have no military applications at all and it will take decades, you know, which is looking at fusion happening and, and not even fusion that's going to create uh, a net positive production of power. This is not even for commercial use. It's just fundamental. And, and it's certainly Department of Energy and Department of Defense supported. This is sort of a cover story, but there's no real use for the military for that yet. But I guess if you look at Rodney Brooks' work specifically, I mean, I guess the early 90s he was doing robotic ants or these kind of creatures, and now, um, you know, he's doing robots that have submachine guns attached to them. So, I mean, my feeling is that all this research can be claimed to be not useful in a military sense but can just be twisted slightly. It's been put to me occasionally, and particularly soon after Ed Salford was on, that a lot of the Eli Lilly related research, and there are other um, there are other pharma companies that are um, using artificial life in order to track uh, chemical compounds, and also actually optimizing research to eliminate chemical compounds which don't appear to be, you know, interesting points of research. That these same algorithms could equally be tuned in terms of biological weapons, in terms of you know a wide variety of technologies which aren't necessarily the kind of things that you know artificial life developers particularly those who participate in these kind of endeavours would want to create. We came back, I remember talking to Travis Servo um, probably a year ago, talking about Einstein and, and the bomb in the kind of continuum from Einstein to the bomb. As we develop this kind of technology, do you think we need a, almost a kind of ethical discussion that goes along in parallel about the uses of this kind of technology and how it can be you know, used in a very positive way or do you think it's just an inevitability of this kind of technology that if the shortest possible distance between it being developed and it coming into something meaningful as a military sense, robots with grenade launchers attached, etc., that it will just follow that natural path? What's your sense with regards to the ethics of this, Bruce? I, I have a kind of a clear vision on this that I've never thought I'd have, and it results from going through Robert Oppenheimer's files at the Institute for Advanced Study. Because if you know the history, you know Oppenheimer was a key scientist on 
on the Los Alamos project, on Los Alamos and the Manhattan Project. He was absolutely instrumental in the creation of the atomic bomb that you know was used in Hiroshima and Nagasaki and the Trinity test and whatnot. But he was one of the most vocal, you know, which was a huge detriment to his his career. Uh, opponents of the mass development of nuclear destructive capability, and then the creation of the nuclear arms race. And at one point in the early 1950s. He was referred to as the conscience, conscience of humanity. So he, he was providing some pushback at, at huge personal cost to him. Uh, if you look at pictures of, of, of Oppenheimer in this time period, and you, you know, he's got this broad-rimmed kind of uh, floppy uh, New Mexico beaten-up uh, leather hat, and under there are these great gazing liquid eyes uh, that are both very wise and very sad and the stress that he's under for the Committee for Un-American Activities and all the stuff. He kept his job at the Institute, but he was really broken by this. However, in the 1980s, when anti-nuclear movements were growing and, you know, this whole idea that, you know, nuclear winter could happen from, you know, Carl Sagan, um, Oppenheimer was referred to as, as, as an early conscious, an early ethical speaker, as one of the, the inventors of the technology, and I think that his spirit or his ghost inhabited that world and came back, and it did have an influence on humanity having a conscience about this. And when the opportune moment came, the Soviet Union uh, just got rid of, and the U.S. too got rid of whole classes of nuclear weapons, just lock, stock, and barrel, and put them in warehouses and stored the fuel and you know, the igniters and whatever, but basically took them out of commissions by the thousands. And so, yes, it is really important to have a, an ethical discussion and a voice and a very public one on any technology as it is inevitably sucked into uh, various uses. Um, and you have to have that, and you have to have that vocal and at the beginning, and it may not make any, in, any impact, but it may down the road be, be essential for a rebalancing. And how do you think we actually do this as artificial life developers, Jeffrey? Oh, we, we definitely need to, to, uh, to keep that uh, narrative going. We may not be the actual proponents of that narrative, but by virtue of the things we make and the way we make them and how we dress them and present them could help people see uh, certain kinds of um, positive uses for, for our work. So in a sense... Um, uh, we can we can definitely help keep that dialogue going. And a good a good example, I've been trying to set a tone in the in the Evil Grid the movies, uh, a tone of lightness and humor uh, and whimsy and cartooniness and a very non-threatening tone, a very positive sort of upbeat, shiny tone in those two movies. Um, Rami L. at the University of College London, the Bartlett School, he approached me uh, about four or five months ago uh, saying, I want to make a movie of The Evil Grid, but I want to do it from more of a Hollywood perspective and, and critters uh, kind of escaping and, and evolving and eating uh, Canary Wharf, which it, currently, if you know, that's the financial center of London. People would be cheering if they saw Canary Wharf being consumed. It wouldn't be a bad thing. Um, so Canary Wharf gets consumed by the escaped evil grid organisms. But at the end, and he's still doing the final edits on this, and he and I worked out the script on this. At the end, he 
said, yes, I, what I'm going to do is show how Canary Wharf and all the concrete and all the awful 60s housing blocks get converted into these amazing new bioforms that are totally sustainable and, and convert the city in from this glass and steel logic-based uh, destructive model into a, a new kind of biology that is compatible with people. Uh, and that, that was the shared vision for his film, but he's still working on them. It doesn't quite come across in the June 1st version. So we're trying to, that's the narrative we're trying to put out for these YouTube movies. I think it's really, a, really a, the, the mechanism of today to, to share uh, narratives. I mean, certainly when I read Wired for War, and I'm not sure what period of time it was, I think it was around January when I picked up the book, but it was around the period of time, and really this narrative started in Biota probably about six to eight months ago as associated with the quality of life for artificial life developers, and it started really my own thinking because I received a slew of emails from artificial life developers who had lost their jobs and were unemployed. Many of them have been unemployed ever since I received their emails, for a brief period of time, I was also in that predicament. And I think it's an interesting narrative associated with kind of contemporary artificial life developers being in, in somewhat hopeless life circumstances and also the lures of, uh, you know, these kind of enterprises in terms of actually bringing in the development. And I've reflected over this period of time associated with, you know, how other artificial life developers, if they were offered uh, an ability to survive and live, uh, through doing, you know, development that ultimately ended up with weapon systems and these kind of things. I mean, can we as a community fault these people for surviving in this manner? And I think this is the broader and deeper ethical question associated with how we use what we've developed. Jeffrey, I mean, what's your thought with regards to this kind of narrative? Well, I suppose if in any society, if, if uh, someone's uh, struggling to find work, uh, their standards... And their principles are, are going to be compromised to some degree. And some of us have stronger principle principles than others. And others, you know, some people will choose jobs that they're not sure they want to do. And you know, so in times of economic economic difficulty, uh, this can happen. I'm actually I'm actually doing some contract work right now. That's that um, I believe is probably. Uh, Fueled a little bit by the stimulus package, uh, the stimulus package from the Obama administration going into uh, new energy uh, technologies and medical. In, in my case, it's it's medical. Um, so you know, and and the, the latest technology review from MIT shows this really cool graph of uh, of uh, where all this money's going, and it's really nice to see these great big blobs of billion, you know, billions of dollars. I don't know to what degree this is is real. But but uh, apparently there you know uh, there's there's money that's that's coming in through certain pipes, and if you can tap that, uh, then you know maybe that maybe there's an opportunity. Well, I certainly put to Bruce as I saw, as you say, these blobs of billions coming through space in particular through NASA, um, that you know the Evo grid could latch on to some of that associated with particularly astrobiology. I mean, I think that's an area that's still receiving some degree of funding, but Bruce. I mean, if you want to air it in a public form, what was your feedback when I mentioned that to you? The astrobiology? No, just the sense that these billions of dollars that were going into things like NASA had basically already been claimed and were relatively untouchable for people that were doing the kind of research that you were doing. Well, it's, it's partially true in that 
stimulus, I mean, it depends on the agency. So stimulus to National Science Foundation initially, NSF, and I can understand why this worked out. They said we're not going. We're only going to fund uh, proposals that have already been submitted to us that we've already approved for funding. We just didn't have it. So they're taking like the things that they wanted to fund and couldn't. And they, but they. So it's really faster. They can get the money out. People are called up and said, you know that proposal you sent two years ago that got a nine and we just couldn't fund it. And, well, here's the money. So that's good. But of course it means you can't, they wouldn't accept new applications. Yeah. The SBIR program, um, at, which I think SBIR, which stands for Small Business Innovation and Research, should be like quadrupled because it's it's such a tremendous program. We've been doing those grants on SBIR grants for eight, nine years, and it doesn't show any sign of, of having a new infusion. And SBIR, the solicitations come out every year, and there's, there's some coming out in about three days from NASA, and it's the same old topics. It's not, there should be triple the number of topics. It's a small amount of money. It has a direct impact economically on a lot of people, and it creates innovation in small businesses. And so I think that the monies are going out. I, in my little world of a small research company, uh, I'm, I'm yet to uh, see uh, avenues by which I can pursue those funds. Maybe Jeffrey could give me some advice. No, I don't think so. I, <laughs> you probably know more about uh, f funding sources than I do. At this point. And I mean, certainly the feedback that I've received from artificial life developers, people that have, you know, PhDs and uh, MSCs who are currently unemployed, is that they haven't had any access to any of these funding resources either. I mean, I think the general feedback that I've received is that the things in the artificial life community in terms of people even being paid and working in secondary, tertiary, or even non-related fields is pretty bleak currently. Having had the experience myself, I think if I was to have the conversation that I had with Mark Bedeau in November last year, the idea that artificial life developers would have this wonderful period where they didn't have any work so they could concentrate exclusively on their own projects, I may have reacted slightly more hostilely to that claim. But I think it's an interesting, it's an interesting ethical problem. But there is some level to talk to Jeffrey's point with regards to, you know, some people have higher ethical standards than other people. People who I've communicated with in the artificial life community that haven't had income for more than a year, um, many of them are actually living in the Bay Area on the East Coast, which I think has been particularly hardly hard hit for, um, you know, technology-related jobs. So I think on some level, people have to eat, and I think it's difficult to say that some people are more ethical than other people, while maybe, you know, life circumstances are different. I wouldn't impugn any of the people that I've corresponded with associated with their ethical level, and I think fundamentally, in order for a movement like artificial life to survive, we all need to have some means of income, even if it isn't through artificial life specifically. And Talking to Bruce historically over the past nine years, the legacy associated with people in the artificial life community who are no longer participants in the artificial life community has always come through major life trauma where they just haven't had work for long periods of time. I mean, you can echo this, Bruce. Yeah, I mean, if you're a visionary technologist uh, like Buckminster Fuller uh, in, the, in the depths of the Depression in his basement, he was building all these oddball structures and cars and gadgets, and his wife came down and said, we're going to starve. And he was raising turtles. He was doing all these kinds of things. And he was starving. They were starving. And he, he um, he's one of, you know, there's many potential Buckminster Fullers that then went and got a, 
a job at, in the government or at, at, a, at, a, at General Motors, uh, Bucky went on and said, well, I, I, I'll try business. So he tried business, and he was really quite bad, and he was totally miserable because he couldn't be creative. And then he was somewhere, found himself somewhere where he ran into the gentleman who was planning the 1939 World's Fair. And ah. suddenly, suddenly Bucky was like, oh, you designed the kind of buildings we would like to have there. Uh, how unusual, How what an amazing meeting this is, and hired Bucky, and they, they built the, the various domes and, and, and stuff, and then Bucky had a career as an architect. At, but it was how many Buckys, and Bucky actually, one of the things he believed, and this is in the Depression, he said that society should set, by, set aside a million dollars, you know, this is a lot of money in the 1930s, I'm going to ask for a million dollars, and and people who reach their early 40s who are the creatives, who are really shown to be creative, should be allowed to quit their jobs and get this lifetime bequeath uh, to just be Bucky's. Um, and the society should find these people and, and allow them to live and work their entire lives uh, from that point on. He said you shouldn't give it to them any younger. They need to be experienced. They need to know why they're doing it. They need to have had a desk job, and, and they need to have life experience, but they should get these uh, endowments. And there's an annual prize that the Buckminster Fuller people put out. I put to Gerald that he should apply for it, particularly with regards to the linkings of Darwin at Home and Architecture. I think that's, you know, a natural fit. I'm not sure what last year's recipient got it for, but the year before got it for um, turning um, strip mines into um, environmental, you know, re environmentally reinvigorating strip mines through various kinds of plants and ecosystem planting. And it's a fascinating annual prize that I think it's the Buckminster Fuller Institute um, puts out, which kind of follows on from this, although I think they only give 100,000 from memory, which they say is enough for a year. So anyway, I'd like to wrap up this extraordinary bio to live to, to thank uh, Peter and Jeffrey and Bruce for participating in this two-part discussion. Our topic next, Bio to Live, well, will be the 50th Bio to Live. So the first question to answer is, what have we learned from doing Bio to Live? And the second is uh, an update associated with open source, because a lot has gone on in the past six months. Uh, new source forge, different interfaces, new projects coming through. The ever-increasing use of the Linux, Linux platform, or Linux, Linux, especially in um, low-end embedded hardware that's quite cheap for people to use. It, it allows people to... Uh, do development and keep their costs down and that allows people to experiment and always encourages uh, experimentation and access to the details, always encourages people to think of new things they can do with it, such as simulating artificial life. Certainly. And I think really that's true for all open source, be it run on Linux or, or more confined platforms. And I also wanted to put a question out in the news and notes to the listening community. We're actively looking for new and exciting artificial life projects, particularly with the advent of things like Biota Eve. We have a series of historical projects that we've introduced into Biota Eve, but it would be wonderful. And here, you know, I'm talking potentially to undergraduate or graduate students or even folks such as William R. Buckley who are coming into artificial life with a kind of huge history of the, uh, of the field, but maybe developing new projects for the first time. Certainly Biota has been used as a springboard with regards to new projects and also interviewing new project developers. And, you know, I'd like to usher more people into the conversation and particularly folk who are perhaps just starting out doing an artificial life project. I mean, I think really, Bruce, you've been the prototype for this with regards to the EvoGrid. Oh, I mean how to start up a project? In some regard, yes. Oh, it's... Uh, uh... 
this is going to be a subject of an entire biodiversity. <laughs> Very much so. Or in the case of the UVO grid, I think about 15 to 20 out of the 50. So right. I'd like to thank the participants for uh, for being on the call this evening. Thanks for the folks for listening in, and, and hopefully uh, TalkShow will be working fine for the next Bio to Life. Thanks, Tom. Wonderful. Thank you. Thank you. Well, and you're welcome.